as we have said, uh, Mark's telling of the story of Jesus of Nazareth is fast-paced and urgent. And as we move through it, the pace quickens and the conflict and tension build. In the five chapters that we've already breezed through, Jesus ran into resistance everywhere. So read it again and take note where he was resisted. In chapter 1, by ordinary people who didn't understand him, by an unclean spirit and a man he encountered. In chapter 2, by scribes who thought Jesus was blaspheming God, by Pharisees offended that he ate with tax collectors and sinners and offended that he broke Sabbath law. In chapter 3, he was resisted by Herodians in cahoots with the Pharisees to destroy him, by scribes who said Jesus was full of the devil, by members of his own biological family who thought he might be losing his mind. In chapter 4, by his own disciples, confused by his parables and frightened by his power. And in chapter 5, by the Roman residents of the Decapolis who urged him to leave their region after he freed a demoniac and upset the social, spiritual, and economic equilibrium. So take note and then scan those five chapters and notice throughout how overwhelmingly popular he was at the same time. See how his followers in their enthusiasm clamored after him, crowding against him, touching him, praising him. He could scarcely escape their adoration, their crying out for help. No matter how hard he tried to get away, they would catch up. So not even a third of the way through this book, and the pattern is crystal clear. The adoration and the resistance are intense. And it will continue like this until it all comes to a head in Jerusalem, in a life and death struggle, that plays itself out in both palace and temple, where the authority figures of both the Roman Empire and the religious hierarchy try to solve the Jesus problem with violence, by killing it off. So what's happening in Mark, and especially in today's text, is that we get a glimpse into the nature of the kingdom of God. Remember, that's how Mark, as well as Matthew and Luke, summarize the essence of Jesus' message. Jesus' opening words in the Gospels are essentially, here is the kingdom of God, here. It is near you. It is at hand. See it. Hear it. Taste it. Enter it. In fact, the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed and lived and demonstrated was compelling. It attracted people like a magnet, especially people who were being left behind by the powers of the earthbound kingdoms and empires. Let's do a quick review of today's gospel story. Actually, three stories that we just heard. Story one, 
Jesus the prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. You see, all the adults in Nazareth knew Jesus from boyhood. And they knew his working class family. They knew his siblings. And they just didn't know how to reconcile his ordinariness with these reports of miraculous power. Mark says they took offense at him. And because of that lack of trust, lack of faith, Jesus was hindered in what he could accomplish there. Mark says he did nothing much except he laid hands on a few people and cured them. Sounds like whoop-de-doo, nothing to see here. Story two, since Jesus could do so little himself in that community, he sent his disciples out into the countryside two by two and delegated his own authority to them. He gave them no provisions, only authority and instructions. Teach and heal and cast out demons. I wonder if Jesus' thought process was, I have too much baggage here in this community. Let them go with no baggage and see what power the Spirit might unleash through them. And as it turned out, they had a much greater impact than Jesus had. Mark says, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. That's a whoop-de-doo for real. Story three, this is about King Herod, who got word of Jesus' growing popularity and power and then got paranoid. Sounds like a lot of people actually were getting a bit tense over Jesus and couldn't agree on what was really happening. Some said, it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others said, it's the prophet Elijah or some other prophet of old come back to the present to set things straight. But Herod seemed to latch on to the theory that it was John the Baptist come back to life, which freaked him out, understandably, because he was the one who recently had John beheaded. And then Mark goes back in time a bit to tell this gruesome story of John's beheading. How far back? Don't know really. Days? Weeks? It doesn't really say, but it's certainly fresh in the memory of the people because the first thing that came to their mind when they saw Jesus' power was that he must be a resurrected John the Baptist. This is a strange and colorful story describing John's beheading, and it happened at the culmination of Herod's big birthday bash, when they were probably all pretty well soused. The details of the story are really not what's so significant. What's important here is the pattern that keeps getting repeated over and over in Mark. This is yet another example of how power from below disturbs and distresses the power being exercised from above. 
the powerful deeds of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth stand in stark contrast to the power being exerted by and anxiously grasped by the likes of Herod and Caesar and the scribes and the Pharisees and such. It seems that the empire and hierarchy of all kinds exercise power over bending underlings to their will by whatever means necessary whereas the power of Jesus and John and the prophets of old challenge the power structures over them and are seen as a mortal threat. So much of a threat that executing the offender seems like the most viable solution. Those calculations are still being made in the world today. We know that, of course, by simply following the news that's coming out of Ukraine and Gaza and too many other places to name. The powers exert their influence on others by force or violence and keep doing it that way until they can't, until a greater power overtakes them and does it back to them. That is the character of the kingdoms of this world, of empires, of monarchies, of dictatorships, of democracies, of republics and socialist states. Sadly, this reality is not limited to the powers of the state or nation. It's also the character of many of our own public and private institutions and political parties and other organized social entities. It even finds its way into the church and to, into religious bodies. It has become an accepted way of being in the world. Our culture has an obsession with popularity, and celebrity, and people who are able to attract attention generally are also able to gather power around themselves. They are influencers. And once they leverage their popularity into power and then institutionalize that power, and establish a position from which they wield that power, then the paranoia sets in. Because they start feeling threatened when others get some of the limelight. Because limelight leads to power. And their hold on power just might start to loosen. So they lash out and try to damage their rivals. Now you know I'm only describing what we're seeing right before our eyes as we watch what's happening in our political system, in our culture, on public school boards, and every other place power is being wielded from a position of superiority. 
Jesus points us in a different direction. There are other ways to look at power. The reign of God operates with a whole different set of assumptions. You know, it's clear in Scripture that God shows preferential care for the poor, for those who are being told they are of little worth. That's why Jesus, in Mark and in every other gospel, really, moves toward the margins, socializes with thieving tax collectors and scandalous women, and touches lepers and challenges both religious and imperial powers. Jesus is exercising another kind of power. Dr. Amanda Brobst Renaud, a Lutheran pastor and theology professor at Valparaiso, as she's drawing on the work of other Mark scholars, wrote a brief commentary on this text and contrasted the reign of God and the reign of Rome. And she wrote, Rome works from the center out. God's reign begins at the margins, in the wilderness, initiating a new sociopolitical order. Rome works from the top down. God's reign starts from the bottom up, a peasant movement spreading like an invasive mustard plant. Rome secures the strongest of its people and exploits the weak. God's reign restores the weakest and most vulnerable. Rather than power demonstrated by all that one has, power in God's reign is demonstrated by all that one gives. Maybe it's too much to ask. But wouldn't it be an amazing turnaround of our polarized culture if we could redefine power in terms of what we give away instead of what we accumulate to ourselves? Well, it might be a lot to ask of our society and our political system, but maybe it's a fair question to ask of ourselves. Do we measure our own life and contributions and, yes, personal power by what we have or by what we give? And what difference might it make if we started measuring our self-worth by what we contributed to the well-being of others, particularly those on the margins. We have an example in Jesus. We have a saving redeemer in Jesus, who by the power of the Spirit is able to transform us into his likeness. It is that giving Jesus, whose supreme act of power was when he gave his very life on the cross. 
which we remember and celebrate whenever we take communion.